Chapter 1 of The Story of My Life and Work. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Story of My Life and Work by Booker T. Washington. Birth and Early Childhood. Many requests have been made of me to write something of the story of my life. Until recently, I have never given much consideration to these requests for the reason that I have never thought that I had done enough in the world to warrant anything in the way of an autobiography, and I hope that my life work, by reason of my present age, lies more in the future than in the past. My daughter, Portia, said to me not long ago, Papa, do you know that you have never told me much about your early life, and your children want to know more about you? Then it came upon me, as never before, that I ought to put something about my life in writing for the sake of my family, if for no other reason. I will not trouble those who read these lines with any lengthy historical research concerning my ancestry, for I know nothing of my ancestry beyond my mother. My mother was a slave on a plantation near Hales Ford, in Franklin County. I am indebted to and beg to thank Mr. E. Weber for valuable assistance rendered in connection with the preparation of this publication, Booker T. Washington. Virginia, and she was, as now I remember it, the cook for her owners as well as for a large part of the slaves on the plantation. The first time that I got a knowledge of the fact that my mother and I were slaves was by being awakened by my mother early one morning, while sleeping in a bed of rags, on the clay floor of our little cabin. She was kneeling over me, fervently praying, as was her custom to do, that some day she and her children might be free. The name of my mother was Jane. She, to me, will always remain the noblest embodiment of womanhood with which I have come in contact. She was wholly ignorant, as far as books were concerned, and, I presume, never had a book in her hands for two minutes at a time. But the lessons in virtue and thrift which she instilled into me during the short period of my life that she lived will never leave me. Some people blame the Negro for not being more honest, as judged by the Anglo-Saxon standard of honesty, but I can recall many times when, after all was dark and still in the late hours of the night, when her children had been without sufficient food during the day, my mother would awaken us, and we would find that she had gotten from somewhere something in the way of eggs or chickens, and cooked the food during the night for us. These eggs and chickens were gotten without my master's permission or knowledge. Perhaps, by some code of ethics, this would be classed as stealing, but deep down in my heart I can never decide that my mother, under such circumstances, was guilty of theft. Had she acted thus as a free woman, she would have been a thief but not so, in my opinion, as a slave. After our freedom, no one was stricter than my mother in teaching and observing the highest rules of integrity. Who my father was, or is, I have never been able to learn with any degree of certainty. I only know that he was a white man. As nearly as I can get at the facts, I was born in the year 1858 or 1859. At the time I came into the world, no careful registry of births of people of my complexion was kept. My birthplace was near Hales Ford in Franklin County, Virginia. It was about as near to nowhere as any locality gets to be, so far as I can learn. Hales Ford, I think, was a town with one house and a post office, and my birthplace was on a large plantation several miles distant from it. I remember very distinctly the appearance of the cabin in which I was born and lived until freedom came. It was a small log cabin about 12 by 16 feet and without windows. There was no floor except one of dirt. There was a large opening in the center of the floor, where sweet potatoes were kept for my master's family during the winter. In this cabin, my mother did the cooking, the greater part of the time for my master's family. Our bed, or pallet as we called it, 
was made every night on the dirt floor. Our bedclothing consisted of a few rags gathered here and there. One thing I remember more vividly than any other in connection with the days when I was a slave was my dress, or rather, my lack of dress. The years when the war was in progress between the states were especially trying to the slaves, so far as clothing was concerned. The southern white people found it extremely hard to get clothing for themselves during that war, and of course, the slaves underwent no little suffering in this respect. The only garment that I remember receiving from my owners during the war was a toe-shirt. When I did not wear this shirt, I was positively without any garment. In Virginia, the toe-shirt was quite an institution during slavery. This shirt was made of the refuse flax that grew in that part of Virginia, and it was a veritable instrument of torture. It was stiff and coarse. Until it had been worn for about six weeks, it made one feel as if a thousand needle points were pricking his flesh. I suppose I was about six years old when I was given one of these shirts to wear. After repeated trials, the torture was more than my childish flesh could endure, and I gave it up in despair. To this day, the sight of a new shirt revives the recollection of the tortures of my first new shirt. In the midst of my despair, in connection with this garment, my brother John, who was about two years older than I, did me a kindness which I shall never forget. He volunteered to wear my new shirt for me until it was broken in. After he had worn it for several weeks, I ventured to wear it myself, but not without pain. Soon after my shirt experience, when the winter had grown quite cold, I received my first pair of shoes. These shoes had wooden bottoms, and the tops consisted of a coarse kind of leather. I have never felt so proud since of a pair of shoes. As soon as I was old enough, I performed what, to me, was important service, in holding the horses, and riding behind the white women of the household on their long horseback rides, which were very common in those days. At one time, while holding the horses and assisting quite a party of visiting ladies to mount their horses, I remember that, just before the visitors rode away, a tempting plate of ginger cakes was brought out and handed around to the visitors. This, I think, was the first time I had ever seen any ginger cakes, and a very deep impression was made upon my childish mind. I remember I said to myself that if I ever could get to the point where I could eat ginger cakes as I saw those ladies eating them, the height of my ambition would be reached. When I grew to be still larger and stronger, the duty of going to the mill was entrusted to me. That is, a large sack containing three or four bushels of corn was thrown across the back of a horse, and I would ride away to the mill, which was often three or four miles distant, wait at the mill until the corn was turned into meal, and then bring it home. More than once, while performing this service, the corn or meal got unevenly balanced on the back of the horse and fell off into the road, carrying me with it. This left me in a very awkward and unfortunate position. I, of course, was unable, with my small strength, to lift the corn or meal upon the horse's back, and therefore would have to wait, often for hours, until someone happened to be passing along the road strong enough to replace the burden for me. My owner's name was Jones Burroughs, and I am quite sure he was above the average in the treatment of his slaves, that is, except in a few cases, they were not cruelly whipped. Although I was born a slave, I was too young to experience much of its hardships. The thing in connection with slavery that has left the deepest impression on me was the instance of seeing a grown man, my uncle, tied to a tree early one morning, stripped naked, and someone whipping him with a cowhide. As each blow touched his back, the cry, Pray, master, pray, master, came from his lips, and made an impression upon my boyish heart that I shall carry with me to the grave. When I was still quite a child, I could hear the slaves in our quarters whispering in subdued tones that something unusual, the war, was about to take place, and that it meant their freedom. 
These whispered conferences continued, especially at night, until the war actually began. While there was not a single slave on our plantation that could read a line, in some way we were kept informed of the progress of the war almost as accurately as the most intelligent person. The grapevine telegraph was in constant use. When Lee surrendered, all of the plantation people knew it, although all of them acted as if they were in ignorance of the fact that anything unusual had taken place. Early one morning, just after the close of the war, word was sent around to the slave cabins that all the slaves must go to the big house, the master's house, and in company with my mother and a large number of other slaves, including my sister Amanda and brother John, I went to the big house and stood by the side of my mother and listened to the reading of some papers and a little speech made by the man who read the papers. This was the first public address I had ever heard, and I need not add that it was the most effective one to which it had ever been my privilege to listen. After the reading of the paper and the speech, my mother leaned over and whispered, Now, my children, we are free. This act was hailed with joy by all the slaves, but it threw a tremendous responsibility upon my mother, as well as upon the other slaves. A large portion of the former slaves hired themselves to their owners, while others sought new employment. But, before the beginning of the new life, most of the ex-slaves left the plantation for a few days at least, so as to get the hang of the new life, and to be sure that they were free. My mother's husband, my stepfather, had in some way wandered into West Virginia during the war, and had secured employment in the salt furnace near Maiden, in Kanawha County. Soon after freedom was declared, he sought out my mother and sent a wagon to bring her and her children to West Virginia. After many days of slow, tiresome traveling over the mountains, during which we suffered much, we finally reached Maiden, and my mother and her husband were united after a long and forced separation. The trip from Franklin County to Maiden, West Virginia, was the first one that had taken me out of the county where I was born, and of course, it was quite an event, especially to the children of the family, although the parting from the old homestead was to my mother a very serious affair. All of our household and other goods were packed into a small wagon drawn by two horses or mules. I cannot recall how many days it took us to make this trip, but it seems to me, as I recall it now, that we were at least ten days. Of course we had to sleep in the wagon, or what was more often true, on the ground. The children walked a great portion of the distance. One night we camped near an abandoned log cabin, and my mother decided that, instead of cooking our frugal meal in the open air, as she had been accustomed to do on the trip, she would build a fire in this cabin, and we should both cook and sleep in it during the night. When we had gotten the fire well started, to the consternation of all of us, a large and frightful-looking snake came down the chimney. This, of course, did away with all idea of our sheltering ourselves in the cabin for the night, and we slept out in the open air as we had done on previous occasions. Since I have grown to manhood, it has been my privilege to pass over much of the same road traveled on this first trip to West Virginia, but my recent journeys have been made in well-appointed steam cars. At the time I first traveled through that part of Virginia and West Virginia, there was no railroad, and if there had been, we did not have the money to pay our fare. At the close of the war, our family consisted of my mother, stepfather, my brother John, and sister Amanda. My brother John is director of the mechanical department of the Tuskegee Institute, and my sister, now Mrs. Amanda Johnson, lives in Maiden, West Virginia. Soon after we moved to West Virginia, my mother took into our family, notwithstanding our own poverty, a young orphan boy who has always remained a part of our family. We gave him the name of James B. Washington. He, now grown to manhood, holds an important position at the Tuskegee Institute. 
While I have not had the privilege of returning to the old homestead in Franklin County, Virginia, since I left there as a child immediately after the war, I have kept up more or less correspondence with members of the Burroughs family, and they seem to take the deepest interest in the progress of our work at Tuskegee. End of chapter 1. Recording by Valentina Vicelli.